Welcome to the January 5th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss whether pregnancy increases the risk of bleeding in women with immune thrombocytopenia. Compare the outcomes of allogeneic stem cell transplantation versus conservative management in adults with inborn errors of immunity. And learn more about the long-term health outcomes and late mortality in childhood AML survivors. Our first blood article is entitled Immune Thrombocytopenia and Pregnancy, an Exposed, Non-Exposed Cohort Study by Stephanie Guillet from the Henri Mondor University Hospital in Créteil, France, and colleagues. Immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP, is an autoimmune disease characterized by acquired thrombocytopenia of unknown clinical cause. ITP can be diagnosed at any age, but has a higher prevalence in women during the childbearing period. Recent studies suggest that pregnancy in women with ITP may be associated with an exacerbation of their disease, posing a risk for both the mother and the baby. Approximately 15% to 30% of pregnant women will require additional treatment for their ITP. Neonatal ITP, or NITP, is believed to occur as a consequence of the passive transfer of maternal antiplatelet antibodies. It also occurs at an approximate rate of 15% to 30% of cases. Except for having a sibling with neonatal ITP, the risk factors of developing neonatal ITP or severe bleeding remain unknown. The current guidelines for the management of ITP during pregnancy are largely based on expert opinion and the findings from retrospective studies. Unfortunately, most studies conducted to date are lacking a non-pregnant ITP comparative cohort. In addition, while past studies are useful in providing a general framework on how to clinically approach women with ITP, they do not address the question of whether a pregnancy modifies the natural course of the disease and changes a patient's clinical outcome. In the current study, the authors aimed to determine if pregnancy is associated with worsening ITP based on decreased platelet count, increased bleeding events, or the need for treatment modification. The authors report a prospective multicenter observational cohort study that included 180 pregnant women and 168 non-pregnant women with ITP. 131 pregnant women with ITP were matched to 131 non-pregnant women with ITP by the history of splenectomy, the status of their ITP at the time of pregnancy, and prior treatment. Both groups were followed for 15 months. The primary study outcome was the first occurrence of ITP worsening, defined as the occurrence of new bleeding and or the presence of severe thrombocytopenia and or the need for ITP treatment modification. Severe thrombocytopenia was defined as a thrombocyte count of less than 30 times 10 to the 9th per liter. Secondary objectives were to study whether pregnancy was associated with obstetrical complications the incidence of NITP and determine risk factors of NITP. Study findings revealed that the 131 matched pregnant and non-pregnant ITP women did not differ in the incidence of first ITP worsening events, the incidence of severe thrombocytopenia, or the incidence of bleeding. However, ITP treatment modification, including ITP treatment initiation, except for ITP treatment used to prepare for delivery, was more frequent for pregnant than non-pregnant ITP women. In addition, 
pregnant ITP patients were more likely to have multiple episodes of worsening ITP than the non-pregnant control group over the same time period. The authors also studied the incidence of transferring ITP to neonates in their pregnant cohort. Firstly, treatment with corticosteroids and immunoglobulin before delivery was successful in raising platelet counts, allowing the patients to receive neuraxial anesthesia. A total of 14% of neonates were found to have neonatal ITP, with a thrombocyte count of less than 50 times 10 to the 9th per liter. Multivariable analysis revealed that neonatal ITP was associated with having a previous offspring with neonatal ITP and a maternal platelet count of less than 50 times 10 to the 9th per liter within three months before delivery. In an accompanying commentary, Juliana Perez-Botero from the Versity Blood Research Institute and Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, notes that the findings by Guillet and collaborators support the hypothesis that the biology of a patient's ITP is not significantly modified by pregnancy. She adds that although the presence of recurrent severe thrombocytopenia and increased frequency of treatments was higher in pregnant women, this difference could be related to the closer monitoring of patients during pregnancy, along with variability in the clinician's threshold to treat. In addition, the rates of pregnancy loss and preterm delivery were no different from those of the general population. Perez-Botero further notes that based on these latest findings, platelet counts could be improved with corticosteroid and immunoglobulin treatment in most pregnant ITP patients, with the appropriate timing of treatment before delivery. She concludes that while the study has multiple shortcomings, including its small size, the findings are nevertheless very meaningful because they include a population that has been historically excluded from clinical research and deserves equitable access to safe and effective medical care. Next up, we'll discuss the article entitled Allogeneic Stem Cell Transplantation Compared to Conservative Management in Adults with Inborn Errors of Immunity by Morgane Cheminant from the University of Paris in Paris, France, and colleagues. Inborn errors of immunity, or IEI, comprise a heterogeneous group of diseases characterized by autoinflammatory manifestations, predisposition to infections, lymphoproliferation, and malignancies. Although a near-normal life expectancy can be achieved in less severe forms of IEI with supportive care, life-threatening complications can occur in more severe forms leading to significantly compromised quality of life and premature mortality. The more severe clinical phenotypes of IEI typically present in childhood and are treated with allogeneic stem cell transplantation, or allo-SCT, or gene therapy. In contrast, IEIs presenting later in life have a milder clinical phenotype and may not have a genetic component. In those cases, conservative management is the standard, especially for patients without disease-related complications. The indications for and the timing of the transplant in older patients remain controversial. Furthermore, the role of targeted agents is still undefined in this group. Studies to date have shown that transplant-related mortality rates are high in adults with severe IEI due to the presence of comorbidities and multiple organ dysfunction. To reduce transplant-related morbidity, reduced-intensity regimens have been introduced and were demonstrated to be safe and effective in patients with chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, including a significant portion of adolescents and young adults. 
This group of authors has previously reported excellent outcomes after reduced-intensity conditioning for ALO-SCT in a group of adult IEI patients with a three-year overall survival of 85.2%. Since prospective randomized trials are not possible in rare diseases with heterogeneous clinical presentations, in the current study, the investigators performed a matched-pair analysis of transplanted adult IEI patients with non-transplanted control patients and compared their outcomes. The study included a total of 281 patients, 79 transplanted, and 202 non-transplanted, included in the French National Reference Center for IEI, or the Royal Free London Hospital's registries. Non-transplanted patients served as controls and were retrieved from the French registry database. All patients were 15 years or older at first ALO-SCT, and were transplanted between January 2008 and December 2018. They underwent either full-intensity or reduced-intensity conditioning regimens. The median age at transplant was 21 years. Transplanted patients were matched with non-transplanted patients according to the decade of birth, age at last review greater than age at transplantation, diagnosis of CGD or combined immunodeficiency, and presence or absence of autoimmune or lymphoproliferative complications. The outcomes, including overall survival, conditional overall survival, and disease-free survival of transplanted versus non-transplanted patients were compared. Study findings revealed that the most common reason for transplant referral was lymphoproliferative disease in 29% of patients or gastrointestinal complications in 19% of patients. Patients with CGD were predominantly transplanted for colitis or infections whereas patients with CID were mostly transplanted for malignant lymphoproliferative disease. The median duration of follow-up was 4.8 years, and the one-year transplant-related mortality rate was 13%. Estimated disease-free survival was significantly higher in transplanted patients compared to non-transplanted patients, specifically 58% versus 33%. Furthermore, non-transplanted patients had an ongoing risk of severe complications, and an increased mean cumulative number of recurrent events compared to transplanted patients. These results were confirmed when patients with COVID and their matched transplanted patients were removed from analyses. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that ALO-SCT prevents progressive morbidity associated with IEI in adults, which may outweigh the negative impact of transplant-related mortality. In an accompanying commentary, Mary Epen from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, notes that the findings of Cheminant and colleagues point to differences between transplanted and non-transplanted IEI patients, with transplanted patients exhibiting more severe clinical phenotype and more active complications at transplantation. An additional strength of this study is that the authors recognized the limitations of their approach and performed carefully controlled analyses including results validation through sensitivity analyses. Therefore, Epen is optimistic that these latest findings will influence clinical decision-making for adults with IEIs. However, she also notes that improving upon the rigor of the studies employing existing registries remains a challenge. One option includes designing a prospective observational cohort based on eligibility criteria established a priori upon entry into a disease registry coupled with reporting of annual longitudinal follow-up data. Another important consideration would be to limit participation to those clinical sites willing to report consecutive patients with IEI 
with a commitment to continued longitudinal follow-up throughout the patient's life. EPIN is optimistic that the adoption of less intense conditioning, as well as the development of new supportive care measures and treatment strategies, will continue to improve the outcomes of patients with IEI. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled Chronic Conditions, Late Mortality, and Health Status After Childhood AML, a Childhood Cancer Survivor Study Report by Lucy Turcott from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and colleagues. Acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, is the second most common type of pediatric leukemia after acute lymphocytic leukemia. Over the past few decades, the treatment for AML has evolved from chemotherapy-based induction, coupled with prolonged maintenance, to dose-intensive, shorter-duration chemotherapy. Since the 1980s, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or HCT, has been widely used, while the routine use of cranial radiation remains reserved for rare cases of refractory CNS disease. In the mid-1990s, post-induction intensification with high-dose cytarabine and donorubicin has emerged as a component of standard treatment. Together, these changes have led to the improvement in the five-year overall survival from less than 30% in the 1970s to nearly 70% in modern times. Along with the improvement in five-year survival, concerns have emerged about the burden of long-term side effects of AML treatment intensification. However, studies to date have provided only limited information about the incidence of late mortality, serious chronic diseases, and subsequent malignant neoplasms in AML survivors. The limitations of previously published reports include small sample sizes, variable inclusion of patients undergoing HCT, and the inability to assess the effects of therapeutic changes over time. In the current study, the authors aim to examine the long-term morbidity, mortality, and health status of more than 800 five-year survivors of childhood AML, included in the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, based on the type of treatment and treatment period. The study included 856 five-year AML survivors, age 21 or younger. Study participants were diagnosed between January 1, 1970 and December 31, 1999, at one of 31 participating centers in North America. Participants were classified into three groups based on treatment received. 1. Allogeneic or autologous HCT. 2 chemotherapy and cranial radiation without HCT, and three, chemotherapy only, without cranial radiation or HCT, late mortality self-reported grade 3 to 5 chronic health conditions, and standardized mortality ratios were assessed for the overall survivor population and stratified according to treatment group and treatment era. In addition, self-reported health status, including general health, mental health, functional impairment, activity limitations, and pain and anxiety due to cancer treatment were compared across treatments, the decade of diagnosis, and with siblings. The median age at AML diagnosis was 7.1 years, and the median age at the last follow-up was 29.4 years. The 20-year late mortality cumulative incidence was highest after HCT, namely 13.9%. With chemotherapy and radiation combination treatment, it was 7.6%, and with chemotherapy only, it was 5.1%. Standardized mortality ratios and mortality cumulative incidence decreased from 38.9% to 
for survivors of HCT diagnosed in the 1970s to 8.5% for survivors diagnosed in the 1990s. 20 years after diagnosis, most survivors did not experience any grade 3 to 5 chronic health conditions. Of note, the 20-year cumulative incidence of grade 3 to 5 chronic health conditions was highest among HCT recipients and was significantly higher among survivors treated with allogeneic compared to autologous HCT, with an incidence of 49.2% for allogeneic versus 30.6% for autologous recipients. Furthermore, the authors observed a reduction in the cumulative incidence of chronic health conditions after HCT from 76.1% in the 1970s to 38.3% in the 1990s, mirroring a reduction in the use of total body irradiation. The most commonly reported chronic health conditions were those affecting the cardiac and respiratory systems, or subsequent malignancies. Interestingly, late mortality and chronic health conditions did not change significantly among patients treated with chemotherapy only between the different time periods. In approximately 88% of survivors, the self-reported health status was good to excellent, irrespective of the treatment. Taken together, these findings indicate that HCT is associated with better long-term morbidity and mortality compared with chemotherapy-based treatment in AML survivors. In an accompanying commentary, Brian Friend, from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, notes that the findings of Turcotte and colleagues demonstrate that treatment intensification and improved supportive care measures have led to dramatically better long-term survival of AML patients over time. However, they also show that treatment intensification is associated with a greater burden of late effects and toxicity that have persisted even in patients treated in modern times. Moreover, the current study shows that the chance of developing a chronic health condition is more than threefold higher in AML survivors compared to healthy siblings. According to Friend, these findings point to a need for close monitoring and surveillance for late effects during long-term follow-up, as well as the introduction of more preventative measures and early interventions in AML survivors. This goal may be achieved by incorporating digital and mobile technology into delivery methods. The more challenging question that remains is how can emerging treatment protocols be modified to reduce late toxicity in AML? Friend believes that the answer to this question lies in the development and incorporation of targeted therapies, such as FLT3 inhibitors. He suggests that treatment-related mortality could be reduced by identifying low-risk AML patients who may not benefit from HCT and by applying molecular and genetic profiling to personalize the treatment approach to improve efficacy and decrease toxicity. Finally, it is also important to work on reducing HCT regimen-related toxicity by developing personalized pharmacokinetic-guided dosing algorithms. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.